This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Impact Tactical. Impact is a tactical outfitter for the men and women of our military, police, fire departments, and other public safety around the country. Impact's core beliefs is that fearless men and women protect our freedom and safety, should have access to the best tactical performance apparel, equipment, and tools on the market. And they shouldn't have to go broke to get it. I've used Impact for about 11 years, and I can attest that they do live up to their core values. So you get a personal recommendation from me. You can find them at impacttactical.com. That's M-P-A-K tactical.com. And be sure to tell them that two cops, one donut sent you. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by HRH Combat Arms. They can turn your vision into reality. They specialize in gunsmithing and Cerakoting. Your Cerakote specialist is Air Force veteran and retired police sergeant Paul Ware, a.k.a. the Sarge. He can Cerakote your firearms, auto parts, tools, even your sports equipment. This veteran-owned business is located at 5025 Saunders Suite, 103, Fort Worth, Texas, 76119. You can call them at 682-304-0363, and you can find them online at www www.hrhcombatarms.com That's www.hrhcombatarms.com All right, welcome back. I am your host, Eric Levine, and this is my podcast, Two Cops, One Donut. Uh, today, my guest is Michael... Sugru, correct? You I, said, I said that right. Okay, good. Um, we practiced a little bit before we got started. And uh, so if you're just tuning in and you want to know what this show is going to be about, first it's going to be about um, the the accumulative trauma that we deal with as first responders. Uh, Michael is a military veteran, Air Force, huh, uh, security forces, and he is also a retired police officer. Um, believe he made it up to the sergeant rank. So before I get too far into trying to describe Michael's career and all of that, I will turn it over to him to kind of give us uh, who he is, where he's from, um, education. Uh, that's always a big thing. People want to know our education level as officers and stuff like that as we get going through. And uh, But I'll turn it over to you, Michael. You tell me where you're from and what led you into a life of service, basically. Got it. I'll try to keep it as short as possible. Uh, so I'm actually originally from the San Francisco Bay Area, was born in Oakland. Uh, my parents were divorced at a young age when I was eight years old. And my stepfather, who came into my life early on, he was actually at the time a police sergeant for the Sausalito Police Department, which is also here in Northern California. And he's actually the sole reason why I went into law enforcement. Um, I remember at eight years old, I actually became a police volunteer for the Sausalito Police Department. And I actually got a laminated official ID card. To me at that time, it was like the coolest thing a kid could ever have. And in reality, I was just like washing patrol cars, you know, filing paperwork. And the highlight every year was riding with McGruff in the annual parade for the city. And fast forward a little bit, when I was in high school, he actually switched departments to Richmond Police Department. And I was a police explorer at about 14 years old. And I knew at that time that this was gonna be my path. Uh, my path did change a little bit. My original goal was to go into the FBI. Uh, my father actually went through the FBI National Academy when I was a teenager and I kind of got the bug there. And so I knew though, if I was gonna do that, you know, obviously I needed a college degree, but in addition to that college degree, I had to get some real world work experience. And so what I did was I applied for the Air Force ROTC scholarship 
and was accepted into Sacramento State University. Got my degree in criminal justice and graduated in 98, got commissioned as a butter bar, second lieutenant in the Air Force. And security forces was my number one pick. So I actually got what I wanted. And, um, you know, that was my plan was just to do my four years, get out and then apply for the FBI. When I was in, I worked a bunch of different assignments all over the U.S. Um, eventually, I actually got assigned to Germany, which was like a dream come true. Hey, and, yeah. and I was actually there when 9-11 happened. And shortly after 9-11, I was actually sent to the Middle East. But because I got that assignment to Germany, I actually extended my Air Force career. And I ended up staying in six and a half years instead of those four years. Um, but while I was actually in, I also realized that federal law enforcement really wasn't what I thought it was. After working with like the marshals, when I was doing nuke security up in Wyoming, Nebraska, and having exposure to the DEA and FBI, I realized that I literally wanted to be a street officer. I wanted to be doing the hands-on work, interacting with people every single day, not stuck in an office, but out in the field all the time. And so Fortunately, when I was in the Air Force, my last duty assignment was back in California at Travis Air Force Base. And that's where I was the chief of security forces. That's where I went through actually Raven training, which was one of the highlights of my Air Force career. And I started applying to all kinds of different agencies all over California when I was getting ready to get out. I got picked up by a couple different agencies, but I picked the Walnut Creek Police Department, which is also in the San Francisco Bay Area. It's probably about 15 minutes outside San Francisco, uh, pretty close to Oakland. It's a suburb, very nice city. Not a lot of crime, uh, but there are surrounding cities and highways where, where crime is happening and things are, are going on. And so, you know, I started out as most officers, went through the field training program and got through that. And about actually, I believe it was a year and a half, I was actually selected to be a field training officer. So I was now then training officers right out of the academy, lateral officers. Eventually I was promoted detective and I was actually undercover on a state drug task force for the state of California where I got to work all over the state, literally working cases targeting mid to high level drug dealers. And that was, that was a dream come true. I mean, that literally looking back now was the single highlight of my entire law enforcement career. Some things happened there. Um, it's a long story, but my boss ended up actually getting arrested. Uh, turns out he was stealing our evidence and selling it on the side. And uh, he ended up going to federal prison for several years. But because of that, I got pulled back into my agency and was in-house detective doing SIU, uh, Special Investigations Unit. And because I think I had that FaceTime, I ended up getting promoted actually early on. So eight years in, I was promoted to sergeant and I was running patrol teams, eventually was a PIO and I retired in 2018 from civilian law enforcement. How many years total did you do as a civilian law enforcement? So civilian law enforcement was about 14 years. So six and a half in the air force and about 14 civilian side. Dang. So you did, you compacted a lot of career into that civilian side, especially doing the drug task force stuff. I did. I mean, it's literally, you know, I had special assignments too. I was a driver training instructor. I was on the honor guard. Um, I did the avoid 25, like DUI suppression in other cities, the stolen vehicle task force. I mean, literally I, I was a hard charger. I was out there every single day 
yeah. trying to catch bad guys. I mean, that was my mission from the start was to get guns and drugs off the street. And, and that undercover position actually was my number one goal. I mean, I set that goal early on yeah, and I achieved it. And literally that dream was just ripped out from me. Dang. Um, so I want one, I want people to understand Ravens in the security forces world for the air force. It's a big deal. It's not easy on, on the officer side or on, the, on the enlisted side. And that mentality for those to get into Ravens it explains a lot when you tell me all the shit you got accomplished just in your civilian side. You were a hard charger because you don't get into Ravens without being one and you're vetted. Well, and the funny thing is, you know, I went through as a young captain and you can imagine, you know, all the instructors were NCOs and I got the crap beat out of you. You were I mean, a target. Hey, I yeah. You know, I was a target and yep. I was the class leader. And the thing was, is, I mean, I literally, one of my buddies, he, I went with an airman from Travis. He was in the 60th. I was in the AMOG. He literally detached his entire tricep muscle. I saw, you know, a female butter bar get knocked cold out. I got multiple cracked ribs. And I don't even weigh a lot, but I lost over 20 pounds Ooh. during that short training. Yeah, and buddy. it was... You know, to this day, one of the most intense things I've ever done. And and so I do have a lot of pride behind being a Raven. And it's something that I'm always going to look fondly on. Yeah. And I got some missions down in South America. And that was just, it yeah. was phenomenal. I mean, I my only regret, and we kind of talked about this uh, before we started recording, was that I wish I would have stayed in on the reserve side. My One of my mm. biggest regrets is not doing both. Yeah. You know, not staying in the Air Force. And I, and I truly regret that. I wish I would have stayed in. Yeah. I, I, I had separated from active duty. It was 06, 2010. And I did about three years or actually four years. Um, and it was, it was eating at me. I was like, why'd you get out? Like at least stay in the reserves. And then I, I got back in. I like, I, they now just at the window too. And they were like, yeah, we'll take you. And so I didn't have to get retrained or anything like that. So was able to transition back in. So, but you are not alone. There's a lot of people that I know that, especially in police work, a lot of people just wish they were in the reserve, regardless whether they had been active duty or anything. They wish they had served the military. I find that to be a common theme for law enforcement officers that never, you know, sign the dotted line for the military. You know, and I think I look back and there's definitely camaraderie in civilian law enforcement, but it's not the same. Uh, when I look back at my military career and some of my best friends today are ones that are actually still in. I mean, they're oh sixes now and above. And I mean, to this day, they're still some of the best friends that I have. And it's it's the camaraderie and the teamwork. And it was the closeness that we had. It was just unparalleled. Yeah, it it, it is different. And I've, you know, I've done all of it. <laughs> I've done police, I've done active duty and reserves. Now that I'm in the IMA reserves, I can even tell you that that camaraderie is even slightly different from a traditional reserve unit. Um, it's, it's hard to explain, but yeah, you're right. That active duty camaraderie is just, it's, it's unique. It's, it's definitely some of the stuff you see on band of brothers or whatever, whatever you want to put to it. But Absolutely. Um, I don't know why it differs so much in police work. I guess it's because we get to go home every day. Hopefully that's the goal. Uh, you know, I think this sounds bad, but one of the things I noticed is that, and I worked in what was considered a, a smaller department 
Um, I think at the time we had like 86 sworn officers, I think maybe like 120 total civilians or employees, excuse me. But it just seemed like it was so competitive and like everyone was out for different positions and different assignments. And it seemed, and not only that, but as a patrol officer, you know, most of the time you're out there pushing a car by yourself. You know, you are going to calls with other people's, but you're initiating traffic stops. You're spending hours alone in your car report writing. Whereas in the military, it's like you're you're always with other people. Yeah. It's just that teamwork, I think, is much more essential on the military side. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, so with your story so far, um, I want to circle back. This whole podcast, one of the things is trying to bridge the gap with the community, um, humanizing, uh, also education. And the big one for me is accountability. Um one of our biggest complaints from the community is that police don't police each other. There's that thin blue line. That's a, and, and I've many times I've given what my definition of the thin blue line is on here, but I'll tell you um, to me, thin blue line is if you fall in the line of duty, uh, let's say you're an office worker and you die, they're going to throw a lunch in. You're going to, somebody's going to check in on your family at the funeral. Um, other than that, that's pretty much it. But if you die in the line of duty, whether it's military or it's in police work, somebody's going to be checking in on your kids, going to check up on your wife, your whatever surviving family members are there for a lifetime. They're going to be there for life. It's not the us versus them. It's that that's what the thin blue line is to me is just always looking out for each other if the worst happens. And I think I think that's a fair evaluation for the way a lot of cops see it, but they don't articulate it that way. I, I definitely agree with you. And the, the other side that I think of it is, you know, when you think about ultimate real evil and there is real evil in this world. And I, you know, an example of that is an active shooter situation or some just very volatile, dangerous situation. And knowing that your brothers and sisters are going to have your back to the fullest, that they're going to go into that situation with you and if need be, they're going to put their lives on the line. Yes. And I think that's that's very unique to our profession. I mean, I think it applies as well to the military. But other than, you know, first responders like firefighters, police officers, the military, it doesn't really apply to most other professions or most other people. True. Very true. It, it It's not that it doesn't occur, but it's more rare. It, it's not expected. You know, you you hear about teachers and school shooters and stuff like that that, cover their kids and, you know, give up their life or get seriously injured and stuff like that. And I don't expect to see that, but when I do, it just, you know, reaffirms what I'm doing out there to try to do better and make sure they don't have to do that. But, um, so the accountability part is what I was trying to get to. And folks, we are on limited time. Uh, Michael's got stuff he's got to be doing today. So we're trying to pack this as a fast podcast for me, most of the time I can go about two and a half hours. So he doesn't have that type of time today, but we're going to get this in while we can. So before we get to your story um, and your book and why that all happened, you said your sergeant got arrested and basically corrupt officer was selling some stuff. How did that come down? Because a lot of people are going to hear that part of the story and they're going to fixate on that because they want, they want to hear cops holding cops accountable. That, that doesn't make the media. So he, he wasn't a sergeant, but he was actually, what he was, was he was a commander. Oh, okay. He was a lieutenant equivalent. And he actually worked at the time. They had California 
uh, DOJ, so Department of Justice, and they had the Bureau of Narcotic Enforcement, DNE. So basically it was the state DEA. And this guy had been a police officer for the Antioch Police Department. He ended up getting into California DOJ. He became a special agent, rose through the ranks, and he became a commander of our regional task force. And so the task force that I was on, it was led by a special agent from DOJ, but it had basically officers and deputies from different agencies within my county, Contra Costa County. And he had been doing this for years, and he had a great reputation um, and the way this unit worked was, you know, there was people always coming and going as far as different officers from different agencies. It was a very tight knit group and it was very high speed group. I mean, literally, you know, you talk about SWAT teams, we were doing high risk entries almost on a daily basis, sometimes multiple times a day. And again, our targets were mid to high level drug dealers. And I had been there at this point for almost two years. You know, my career was going very well. Things were aligning. I was becoming more one of the more senior special agents on the task force. And my plan literally was to do five, maybe seven years. I was going to max out this assignment as long as I could, because I literally was living my dream at this very moment. And so I remember the day I was actually away at training. I was in a leadership class and I was several hours away and I get a phone call from one of my partners on the task force. And he's like, dude, you're not going to believe this. But his name was Norm. He's like, Norm is in jail. And I'm like, what are you talking about, dude? He's like, man, I'm not, I'm not BSing you. He's like, Norm is sitting in county jail right now. And we didn't know what was going on. It was like this big whirlwind that basically happened. And we all got back to the unit. Um, they actually had investigators there from the state. We were all interrogated and interviewed. And we found out a couple things. The first thing is, they ended up getting a tip somehow, the California Department of Justice, that Norm and the task force may have been involved in some corruption or illegal activities. And so California DOJ actually sent an entire team from Southern California up and actually surveilled us. We didn't know this, but they were doing surveillance on my entire team. And thank God, this is the key. They actually did a wiretap investigation and were listening in on all our work phones. And the reason why I say thank God they did that is because by doing that, they were able to figure out that none of the other agents that were on the task force were involved, nor did we know about his actions. And it turns out what he was doing is that when we were away at training and we would go to a lot of different trainings, a lot of different conferences, that's when he would go into the evidence area, the secure evidence, and he was actually taking out some of our you know, controlled substances that we got from legitimate cases and was selling it on the side, among many other things that we found out. But again, thank God DOJ did a full investigation. Yeah. And they ended up prosecuting him on multiple, multiple charges. I mean, there was just, this guy was like running a brothel on the side. I mean, he was using steroids. Like it, it was on, I believe, 48 Hours, the TV show. They did a special episode and there's been books written about it. it. It was just crazy how far this thing spread. But, you know, when that happened, I couldn't believe it. I mean, literally, I was working my butt off, you know, in my dream assignment. And this guy took it all away in literally an instant. And because of him, they shut down most of the task force in California. At the time, we had 53 regional drug task force in the state of California. 
And right after this, they eventually dropped it down to 17. And eventually, they actually got rid of B&E, the Bureau of Narcotic Enforcement, entirely. It's not even there anymore. California DOJ does not even have a B&E section anymore. And Norm, he actually ended up, I think he got convicted, I don't know if it was 14 years federal time, but I think he ended up doing like eight, eight and a half years in federal prison. He actually recently just got out. Um, He actually reached out to me um, while in prison. I guess he found God. He actually went back to school and got his doctorate in theology. Um, He wrote a book. You know, I haven't seen him, but he did reach out to me and he apologized. And he sent me a very heartfelt apology. And, you know, I never thought that I would be able to forgive him, but all the things that I've been through and how my life has changed, um, the things that I talk about in my book, I look at people and I look at life differently. It used to be very black and white for me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's I've learned that people fall into hard times. They have their own trauma. They have their own issues. And most people I don't think are inherently evil or bad people. I just think they make bad choices based on the circumstances of their life or the experiences they've had. And, I, you know, again, what he did was absolutely disgraceful, and he'll never be a law enforcement officer again. And I don't forgive him for that, but I do forgive him as a human to say that, you know what, if he's now putting his life in a positive direction and trying to turn that and help other people with addiction and other things like that, then, you know, that's a good thing. But but what he did was absolutely disgraceful. And I can tell you, as you already know, but for the people that are watching and listening, that nobody despises a, a dirty cop more than a police officer because 99.9% of police officers are good and they're doing this job for the right reasons. And they're out there every single day putting their lives on the line for complete strangers. And so it infuriates us when something like this happens. Yeah. Bad cops, man. They, like you said, a a good cop that, that is, it sucks because it doesn't matter all the good deeds you do. As soon as one cop does something bad, you could have built up this big deposit of great deeds. One bad deed ruins it for all of us. And absolutely. And then there's no recourse. There's nothing we can do. That's kind of one of the reasons I made this pod was like, I want to give officers a voice. I want to give the community a voice and then we can bring that together and start trying to have the conversations and trying to show, look, like, like you, you know, look at all this good you've done. Nobody would have ever heard of all this. And then now you got a book that you're continuing to serve even out of service. You know, you're retired. You did your deed. You did everything that you set out to do yet. You're still helping in your situation that you had went through many other officers or first responders or military may be in very similar shoes. I'll never say we, we, we've had the same situations happen. If an officer has been involved in a shooting, that doesn't mean he knows exactly what's going on with the next officer that's involved in a shooting. Like you said, we all have our different um, traumas and things and, and scenarios in life and all of that. So with that said, sir, um, we're about 20, 25 minutes in, um, I want to get to your story. You, you mentioned your book, and that's kind of the point. I want people to um, know about your book. This isn't a sales pitch by my side at all, guys, For if you're listening. Um, 
I've, I've done some research on the book. I've, I've looked at the reviews. I understand the topics and stuff like that. But this man wrote a book, and I think it is very beneficial to first responders. I think it's very beneficial to military. Um, so I want you, Michael, if you could, sir, um, kind of explain what de- what caused the book to be developed. So I'll take you back to 2012. Um, in November of 2012, I was promoted to a sergeant. And, you know, at that time, my life was perfect. I was happily married, had a beautiful two and a half year old daughter. I literally just bought my dream house. My career was off the charts. I mean, I've been promoted quicker and faster than anybody. I mean, everything was aligning. I couldn't think of one negative thing that was happening in my life. My health was good. My family's health was good. And fast forward to December of 2012. So um, when you get promoted to sergeant, my agency, we all have a little short field training program where you just ride along informally with other sergeants. And I did that and I was cut loose. And I was on my second solo shift. Um, It was our Friday. The shift started the day after Christmas, so December 26, 2012. And it was quiet. I mean, it was just a, you know, normally after a holiday, it's very quiet. We had minimum staffing. Nothing was going on. I was already making plans for the weekend because I was going to be off for like three or four days. And about three in the morning, you know, this complete silence that had been going on for hours and hours, all of a sudden the female dispatcher gets on the radio and she starts screaming. I mean, panicking. I never heard her voice like this before. And she puts out that there's a woman inside a condo and there's a man armed with a knife. And so we all just start racing. I'm literally the only supervisor on for the entire city. And I had four officers that were on duty. And we all start just going to this location. It was on Creekside Drive. I knew the area. It was a bunch of basically condos, apartments, um, high density, basically living. You know, dark street. I knew the address, but I didn't know this condominium complex. There's several units. They're all attached. And as I'm getting closer to the call, the female dispatcher again gets on the radio and she's panicked. And she puts out now that the boyfriend and girlfriend are now barricaded inside their bedroom. And I was confused. I asked the dispatcher, you know, hey, is the boyfriend the one with the knife or is there a third party inside the condominium armed with a knife? And she said, no, there's actually a third person with the knife. And at this point, this seems like eternity, but literally I got to the scene, I think, in a matter of a couple minutes. And I'm already envisioning just this horrific scene, blood everywhere. And as I pull up in front of this condominium complex, I'm looking and I see the main address, but I don't see the unit. And as I start to get out of my car, the the dispatcher again, this time is really screaming. She's like, units, units, there's a struggle, there's a struggle. And then she says the phone line went dead. The the dispatcher lost all communication inside the condominium. At that same time, as I'm getting out, I can hear blood curling screams from a female coming from the distance. And thank God at this time, one of my officers pulls up right behind me and we just start running towards the screams. Again, we didn't know where this unit was, but we're just running towards these screams. We eventually have to crawl under this outdoor stairwell and we get into this open courtyard. And now there's condominiums on all sides. We end up seeing the the unit and it goes just dead silent from this blood curling screams to nothing. I mean, literally, I don't see anybody outside in the complex. I don't hear any other noises. It's just me and one officer. And we know we've got more people coming, but we got to get inside that condo. So we start yelling. We're announcing ourselves. Guns are out. You know, please come out. Show us your hands. Nothing. Eventually, my partner sees there's a huge window, 
It's the size of a door. It's a louvered window, and it's shattered completely inside the condominium. Again, we're announcing ourselves, nothing. We look at each other, and we just go in. She goes in first. I'm right behind her. We come into a kitchen area. You can see, like, a cutout, which goes into, like, a family room, dining room area. Clear the kitchen. She goes right. I go left. I end up clearing that family room area. She ends up coming to a stairwell. I join her. There's nothing downstairs. We don't see anybody. Now we're shoulder to shoulder looking up the stairwell. Guns are out. Again, announcing ourselves. At first, we don't see anything. Moments later, a male partially comes out. We can't see the right side of his body. Can't see his right hand or his right arm. He's sweating profusely. His eyes are wide open. He's literally staring right through us. I mean, the best way to describe it is like something out of a zombie movie. And now we're saying, show us your hands, show us your hands. And he is not reacting at all. I mean, literally, there's no facial expression. There's no body movement. He is just staring straight through us. Moments later, he comes all the way out. And my partner yells, he's got a knife, he's got a knife. And in his right hand, he had clenched a full-size butcher knife. At this point, two more officers come in. I yell for one to get on the taser. He positions himself behind myself and my partner, and there's another female officer perpendicular to the stairwell. Next thing you know, the male comes up with a knife over his head and starts coming down the stairwell. We all shoot. The taser ends up missing. At the time, none of us knew if we'd hit him or not. Two of the female officers retreated to the family room. The male is now at the bottom of the stairs. We can't see any blood. I can't see any injuries. He's still clenching this butcher knife. And now the male officer had the taser. He's got his gun out. And literally, we are just a couple feet from this guy. And we're yelling, drop the knife, drop the knife. And he starts coming up again with the knife. And there's no nice way to say it, but we had to take his life, not only to save our lives, but the couple that was upstairs. He was between us and them. And it turns out, thank God we got there and we did, because he was literally stabbing through the bedroom door with the butcher knife. And this couple was physically barricading themselves against the door, trying to prevent him from coming in. And I know had we not gotten there and we did, they would be dead. No doubt. Did he know them? So that's the thing is we didn't find this out till later on. But the backstory to this is, is that in this condo, there's three guys that live there. They're all roommates. One of them was still gone for the holidays. One guy, the victim, had his girlfriend over and the suspect, turns out, actually lived there. To this day, we don't know why this guy did what he did. He literally had no police contacts, no criminal history, no history of mental disorders. I mean, nothing. For all intents and purposes, this young man had a job. He was well-liked. He got along with his roommates. In fact, earlier that night, the two male roommates and the girlfriend were all downstairs hanging out, cooking pizza, watching a movie. And at some point, the victim roommate and the girlfriend go up to their bedroom and they're playing video games. And the girlfriend passes out. And hours later, into the middle of the night, around 3 in the morning, is when the suspect, and they describe the same look. He goes into the bedroom, hops on the bed, and starts trying to choke to death the male roommate. And they're trying to talk to him. They're trying to say his name, and there's no reaction. And both these guys were wrestlers. And thank God, somehow, the boyfriend and girlfriend got him off of him. They got him downstairs 
outside the condominium. They locked the door, ran upstairs, and barricaded themselves inside the bedroom. And that's where the suspect then smashed through the window, grabbed a knife out of the kitchen drawer, and went straight up to the bedroom door and was stabbing through the bedroom door when we got there. Holy shit. That is... You don't hear stories like that. That's what makes that unique because typically it's drugs, mental, you know, psychosis, snap type thing that there's a history. So for him, for there to be no backstory, that is nuts. Nothing on the tox report, I take it. He did have marijuana in his system. Eh. Um, His roommates had said that he had used MDMA or ecstasy about two weeks earlier. Um, They said he was smoking sage that night. And, you know, the facts are there are undetectable substances. I mean, they're always changing the chemical formulas. And so the theory is that it was some kind of drug-induced psychosis or it was a mental break. You know, and there it could have been a actually marijuana-induced psychosis. Okay. Um, It it does happen. But, again, that's the thing is that we don't have the answers. I ended up getting sued and during four years of a federal lawsuit. Eventually, I was even a defendant in federal court. And we saved this couple's lives. I mean, we saved our own lives. We had witnesses. Like, like it was a clean shoot, but yeah. the family yeah. wanted answers. And in the end, we never got answers as to why he did what he did. And that's the thing is that I want people to understand is that I have to live with this for the rest of my life. It doesn't matter that it was the right thing to do. It doesn't matter that I had no choice that we save lives. I have to live with the fact that I took a human life. Right that there are parents now who don't have a son. There's a brother who lost his brother. And I didn't tell you that he is an identical twin brother who was in the Air Force at the time when this happened. Oh, man. Identical twin brother. Oh, my God. I can only imagine the mind fuck that played with you in court. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, this this face that I couldn't get out of my nightmares and my dreams for years was literally in the courtroom in front of me. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was the first thing I thought of when you started talking about this is in folks listening, like this is the type of things that us as first responders, military, we, we pick up on these cues really quick because we see so many of us that this is, we're talking one incident. There's this thing called the cumulative trauma. And I've had several other guests on that, you know, um, Keith Hanks is one. He's an FD guy out in Boston. Um, and he talks about that. And, uh, it, it's, it's for some like guys like me, I, I don't have any PTS issues that I'm aware of, but I have been triggered before, um, on a domestic violence type show. It was a TV show that actually gave me like a flashback. And then that's when I started really looking into this stuff. Um, and, and finding you and finding some of these other guys. But what I want folks to understand is like, even when everything's done right, it doesn't make a difference. It doesn't mean we're immune from any type of trauma. Um, I don't, I think it's against human nature to take a life, a human life. I just, I just, I believe that. I don't think we were designed to, to kill each other. Um, but obviously, it had to be done. You, you can't play the what if game. You can't take the risk of your partners getting stabbed. Now imagine the trauma from that. This is these are things I want people to consider when they're like, "Well, why couldn't he have tased him? Why couldn't he have done this?" The you you're asking all these whys. Imagine all the questions that 
Michael's asking himself. Imagine all the questions that the people that were there, the other officers, the the couple that was in the room, all these questions, these what ifs, these these are this is a it's going to be a thing for the rest of their lives. So I I'm I'm I like I like I got it's a bad way to put it, but I like that you're bringing this up that it was a clean shoot and you did have to go to court and all these circumstances that happened afterwards. So you get sued by the family because, like you said, you guys had no answers. You're asking questions yourself, like, what could I have said different? What could I have done different? Maybe somebody else should have had a taser out, you know. Did we have to go in? You, you had to go in. You had, some, you had life. I mean, that's your duty um, to go in and protect, save lives. So you go through this, and you get sued. What was, what was that like? What did, did that throw you for a loop? Was that something unexpected? You know, I think nowadays, you know, you can expect to be sued for a shooting, but honestly, back in 2012, uh, most often if it was a good shoot and it wasn't controversial, if there wasn't any issues, you know, you weren't likely to get sued. So, um, and there had been a previous shooting in our agency, but it had been several years earlier. Nobody was sued. And so when we got sued, I mean, it happened right away. I mean, while everything was fresh, everything was going on, okay. you know, we're going through parallel investigations from the district attorney's office, from our own IA investigation. And, you know, they wanted answers, but imagine the pressure of, you know, the fact that I just took a life that I almost got killed. I mean, literally in that instant, this feeling of invincibility that I'd had my entire life in both the air force and eight years previous to this in my civilian law enforcement career. And I'd been in hundreds, hundreds of traumatic, dangerous situations, high risk situations, situations where I almost shot other people, you know, where I used force. But for whatever reason, this incident literally took away my feeling of invincibility in literally a second. So I'm dealing with that. I'm dealing with constant nightmares. I'm isolating. I'm not talking to my spouse at the time. I start drinking because I can't go to sleep. And then when I do sleep, I have nightmares. And then it's like, it's a cycle that just kept, you know, going. And there literally was nobody I could talk to at that time. You know, we had peer support. We had a contracted therapist, but I didn't use those things. I didn't have that trust. I didn't have those relationships. In fact, we had a critical incident debrief a week or two after our shooting with a therapist. And for us, it was a fact finding mission because we weren't allowed to talk to each other. And it was the first time we were together in a room. And so we just wanted to find out, you know, what did you see? Where were you at? What was your perspective? And nobody was talking about feelings. I wasn't talking about the fact that I was already having constant nightmares, that I couldn't sleep, that I was isolating. You know, that's the thing is that's our culture. That's the stigma. And so you take all that pressure and now I've got a lawsuit, which drug on for four years. And every year we had to go through depositions where the father of the man I killed was literally sitting across from the table from me, staring at me, you know, eight hours a day being videotaped, you know, every word documented. And as much as I wanted to forget this incident, I couldn't. I literally had to know every single detail and I couldn't forget anything because my life was on the line. And in September of 2016, I was a defendant in federal court in San Francisco, one of the worst places you could imagine to be a defendant in court, 
where literally now I'm being treated like the suspect. I mean, imagine that when I did the right thing, when we saved lives, when we were cleared in the shooting, but yet I still have to go through this. Yeah. Now, prior to that, um, I know there's a ton of training right now, especially for these types of incidents um, and, and trauma. At that time in 2012 to 2016, had you received any training prior to that to to deal other than knowing about peer support? Had you received any training to deal with trauma? Well, you know, we had annual training, to be honest with you, and it was required training and they would bring in the department therapist. They would have the peer support people there. They would have the supervisors of the peer support, you know, team. And they would talk about, you know, they'd hand out the phone lists and there was laminated cards where here's the people on the team. Here's their number. You can call them day or night. You know, here's some different programs. And the thing was, is like, I knew factually about these programs, but there wasn't anybody on the team that I trusted like that. There wasn't anybody that I could confide to where I really felt like it would be protected and my career or my positions wouldn't be jeopardized. And that's the thing is what, you know, you may have these things on paper, but if people aren't utilizing these programs, they're completely useless. And in order for these programs to be effective, there has to be trust and there has to be confidentiality. And there has to be where there's no repercussions on your career, on your assignments, on your promotions. You know, you have to know that if I need help, here's where I can go to get it. And I'm going to get it in a, you know, private, trusted, confidential environment. But if people think, no, 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 people are going to find out about this. You know, somebody on the team is going to talk or the therapist is going to talk to the city. Then people aren't going to ask for this help. Yeah. There's got to be support. There's got to be confidentiality, but there's got to be trust. And that's what I'm out trying to do right now is changing the culture, normalizing, talking about this stuff, because this is normal. Like we're literally exposed to hundreds and hundreds of traumatic incidents over our careers and we're human and this stuff is going to take a toll. And so we just need to acknowledge it and we need to normalize talking about it at the time and not waiting too long. Like I did, I literally had everything bottle up for over four years to the point where it almost cost my life. Now, with while you're going through that, did you recognize within yourself, did you recognize symptoms? Were you like, all right, this is bad. All right, this is bad. I should get help. But you don't. Absolutely. So you I, did I knew, recognize right early on. I knew the morning I got home from my shooting after being up over 24 hours, the moment I saw my wife and daughter at my front door, and when they tried to hug me, at that moment, I felt numb. I felt detached. You know, that was just the start of it. And it was a gradual process, but I definitely noticed it. But how did I deal with it? I drank. I denied it. I kept it inside because I felt like there's nobody out there like me. There's nobody out there that would understand what I was going through. And and basically, who am I going to talk to? If yeah. they're not going to understand it, if they're going to judge me, if they're going to think that I'm weak, you know, that's the thing is I thought it was weakness. I thought it was shameful admitting that this stuff had an effect on me, admitting that I need help. And that's what prevented me from asking for help. Gotcha. All right. Um, we're going to show a quick clip. Um, 
One of the things I'm trying to avoid on this podcast is Michael's done a lot of speaking engagements, and I, I'm trying not to make him uh, repeat himself necessarily. I'm trying to hit some different angles on this podcast. Um, so I want to show one um, this uh, episode um, with uh, Dr. Shauna Springer. She is the co-author. Is she the co-author uh, author of your book, correct? She is, and with uh, Chris Luttrell, who's actually a current police officer and good friend, and okay, uh, both are phenomenal people. But yeah, it was yeah. definitely a great interview. And it's from the uh, Gravity Podcast, so I want to give him credit. This is not my content, so um, let me open this up here. And it's just a quick clip, people. I just kind of wanted you to hear. It looks like we're in the same home. Uh, so <laughs> let me hit play on this real quick. The, um, the compounding effects of everything that went on in this one season for you from uh, losing your dad to uh, being sued in federal court uh, without going into all of it. Cause I want the, I want the listeners to have to, <laughs> to be ready to buy a rel- relentless courage once it uh, goes on presale on Amazon. Uh, but what were some of those, some of those just heavy, heavy things that you were, they just continued to stack on your shoulders more and more as in the aftermath of the shooting? You know, what I noticed immediately was that I started distancing myself from loved ones, my family, my support network. And literally I, I pushed my spouse away at the time and it really caused some major problems within my relationship and my marriage, which ultimately led to my divorce. And when you look at the height of all my struggles and that's my father passing away, the lawsuit, as you mentioned, you know, multiple investigations, marriage falling apart, and then now fighting for custody of my daughter to having major health problems. And I started getting repeated uh, skin cancer diagnoses, the lawsuit. And it was literally this incident that I wanted to forget and I just wanted to go away, but literally I couldn't. With this pending lawsuit, not only did I not have to forget it, but I had to remember every finite detail. I had to know exactly what happened because I was going to eventually be on the stand in federal court and have to testify to this for the fourth time. And the thing was that during all of this, there wasn't a person who I trusted enough to go to and talk to, you know, except for my father and he was dying of cancer. And so imagine that my, really my only support network that I had, the person I could talk to about work related things who I knew he would get it. He was taken away from me in a matter of a couple of months. And it was just this perfect storm and this combination of hell that literally made me not want to be here anymore. Why I didn't care. And I started putting myself in dangerous situations, hoping I died in the line of duty. All right. Let me get that off of there. All right. That should take care of the echo issue. That's heavy shit, Mike. That's heavy, heavy stuff. Um, Skin cancer, father dying. Divorce, the divorce alone. I mean, that's a common thing anytime there's a traumatic thing, but you got kids involved. um, And, you know, I'm sure just talking about it now and bringing it up, like I, I, I get this feeling of doom in myself because I have all that same stuff. I have, I have a family. I have my, I'm married. I've got kids. Um, My dad is still with me. Um, My dad's retired police as well. (laughs) Same department. Um, so I'm putting myself in your shoes right now. Like in, and I just feel 
like a sudden hopelessness. Like it just, I'm falling in a hole and I didn't go through any of what you went through. So that is some heavy, heavy stuff. Now the skin cancer, I mean, and then going through the depositions and stuff on, I mean, you're right. You absolutely, I think you got the biggest shit storm I've ever heard of when it comes to trying to just get past trauma that won't leave you. Yeah. You know, I look back now and I don't know how I got through it. I mean, I know I'm here today for a reason. I I truly believe that. And that's why I'm on the path that I'm on now. But the thing is, is what I've learned in the volunteer work that I do now, the speaking that I do is that there are so many other people out there suffering in silence who are dealing with, you know, problems just as bad, just as big. And, you know, what I've learned is that I'm not unique and I'm not special. And, you know, there's so many of us out there just going through things. And I, what the public doesn't realize is that, you know, we have our home life and our families just like them. So we deal with all these normal issues that they deal with. But on top of that, we're exposed to these hundreds and hundreds of traumatic incidents at work day in and day out for sometimes 20, 30 years. And we're seeing the worst of the worst. I mean, literally people call us on the worst days of their lives. They don't call us when they're having a great day. And so we've got to deal with the work life and the home life. And there's not often you know, much separation between the two because you're constantly working overtime. You're constantly short staffed. You're getting called in, you're going to court. I mean, it's a constant balance and struggle. And so many of our first responders are dealing with countless issues. What's your argument or you got to say about the people that say, well, that's what you signed up for. You should know that going into it. Well, I'll tell you what, that comment right there is pure ignorance and it really pisses me off. And my, my blood pressure just, just went up when you said that, because I'll tell you what is that I did sign up to put my life on the line every single day. I was willing to go out there and die for complete strangers, knowing I may not come back home to my family. And that's what all our first responders do day in and day out. Yeah. I, I, we didn't I, sign up. I hate we didn't that. sign up to die. Yes. We did not sign up to die. We know it's a possibility, but you just say, well, that's what you signed up for. So it's not a big deal. I call BS on that because it's a huge deal yeah. because how many other people are willing to go out there every single day and put their lives on the line for complete strangers. Right. Think about that. And I didn't expect to be ostracized for the training that gets approved as a team effort between the community and the department that I work for to follow that training to a T and then have to go through being sued, go through being drugged through the ringer, going, being drugged through, uh, that now all of a sudden I'm being treated like a bad guy when I did what y'all approved me to be trained to do. And then the other side of the house is even after all that, one thing that nobody trained me for and nobody is, nobody's trained us on yet since is letting us know all of the baggage that's going to come with that type of traumatic experience. Nothing prepares us for that. Even in the military, the military is really good at trying to um, get you mental health um, options and, and training. And so is 
police work nowadays and firefighters, all these, they, they, they're really, it's really a main focus because one of the highest suicide rates is first responders and military. So they're really harping on that, but nothing prepares us for the type of baggage that comes with exactly what you went through. And I'm sorry, my friend, but you, you have the worst, some of the worst baggage I've ever heard. I mean, not only did you have to deal with the aspects of taking a life, but geez, the, the, the health things with you, the health things with your father, and then your, you know, your spouse and child. Damn. You know, you know, one thing that I think is kind of ironic is that if, if you really stop and think for a second is that the general public, when it comes to our military, our service members, they, they accept the fact that our soldiers, they could get PTSD. You know, they go to combat, they see horrible things. It's accepted, it's supported, there's resources. But I think the general public doesn't think of first responders and PTSD. And, and the ironic thing about that is, is that, you know, let's say you're in combat and you're going to a combat zone for a defined period. So you know you're in a hostile zone, you know there's danger, you know you may die, and it is extremely dangerous. But at some point you leave that environment hopefully, and you come back stateside, you go to your base, you go home, you are removed from that. And you may, you may have a few deployments in your career. Some military people have no deployments. But if you think about our, especially our law enforcement officers, we're literally in combat every single day, every single day with no safe zone for 20, 30 years. And if you even take the climate now that we have against police officers and the facts that officers and their families are being targeted off duty and people are being followed home and this anti-law enforcement sentiment. I mean, we are on edge and on guard 24 seven for 20, 30 plus years. Mm -hmm. And our public needs to understand that our cops are out there in combat, putting their lives on the line. And we see the worst of the worst. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I find myself like I, I constantly try to battle with putting us like, cause when we say, when you say that, when we say that as officers, like we, we sound like we're putting ourselves up on a pedestal that we don't want to be on. Like, like that's the truth. We don't want to be on that pedestal, but we hold ourselves to a higher standard. We expect to be held to a higher standard, especially like with what happened to your commander, you know, that dude, like you said, bad cop doing bad things. Like, hammer him like you know when it comes to court time hammer his ass but not when we're out there trying to do the right thing and unfortunately the worst of the worst happens when we have to take a life like you said that we need to get the community to hear things like this and not look at it through a cynical lens and try to like walk a mile in our shoes we're definitely going to try to walk a mile in your shoes you know, look at the big picture. Um, you said, you know, before you tended to be kind of a black and white officer and then you eventually started seeing the bigger picture the, the longer in your career. I think that is a common thing for um, good officers with experience. I think they start to, you know, just because you were doing uh, 50 and a 40 doesn't mean I have to write you a ticket. Like these are these are these I call them the big picture things. You know, you get somebody pulled over. They don't have a valid license. Um, maybe they're an immigrant, um, but they have insurance. They're at least trying to do the right thing. They're working and you caught them, you know, 
and a car that you could easily tow, maybe even take them to jail, things like that. Like you, you look at the big picture, this guy's trying to do the right thing and um, keep that lens. So with keeping that lens, this is where I need the community to start. Um, it's a team effort. I, they have expectations of us and that's, it's valid. And I have expectations that I'm trying to present to the community. And one of those is things like this. We, we, Forgiveness has to be both ways. It has to go on both sides. And the shit that you went through, it's not fair when we all know this was a justified thing. Was was body cams a thing then for y'all? We didn't have them at the time. Uh, my agency has them now, but when this yeah. shooting happened, we did not have body cams. We yeah. didn't have dash cams or body cams. I think that was kind of, oh, you didn't have dash cams either. either. No. How large was your department? About 86 sworn at the time, about 120 total employees. Okay. Um, how big is the city out there? Uh, during the day, it grows. But at night, I'd say it's probably about 67,000. But during the day, it probably gets close to 90, 100,000. Okay. And you got to do a drug task force out there. Was it like a tri-city? Was it a county? How did that go for you? Well, it was a county, but we okay. ended up going all over the state. So I even got to do some interdiction down at the Mexico border and, you know, up in planes, helicopters, wiretaps, working with feds. I mean, it was, it was primarily in our county, but if you, if you could find a nexus to our county, then you could go outside the county. That's kind of how it worked. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's pretty common. I got to do a task force for catalytic converters of all things. Um, it was a hot ticket item. Uh, it still is, honestly. But, uh, yeah, we got permission to, to venture out and stuff when the investigation led us that way. Um, all right, Michael, we're, we're getting close. I don't want to hold you up. But um, so after all this goes down, you write a book with a, your co-author, um, which we showed, which was Shauna Springer. So I got her name up here. Um, explain the book. What was the what are you what were you trying to convey to officers, first responders, military, whoever it is like? Why did you feel compelled to write it and, and what were you hoping to get out of it? So first of all, I want to give credit to Dr. Shauna Springer, uh, amazing, amazing person. She's the one that actually made this happen. And she is a psychologist. She's worked with combat veterans and first responders most of her career. She's written a couple books already and she truly gets it. She's culturally competent. And she actually reached out to me, uh, now it's a couple years ago and we had a discussion on the work she was doing, I was doing. And she actually asked me, you know, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I was like, well, honestly, it's funny you asked that because I've been asked that before and I have thought about it, but literally because of the post-traumatic stress, I don't think I have the focus or concentration to be able to even put this together and, and make a book happen. And so we kind of left it at that. She reached out to me a couple months later and she's like, look, she's like, your story, it's going to save lives. It's going to resonate with so many people. And she's like, I want to make this happen for you. I want to make this book happen. And so, again, I really have to give Dr. Shauna Springer credit because she she made this happen. And this started actually at the height of COVID. And so when we started working on this project, we never met in person. We literally did this all via Zoom for like over a year and a half. And we would have a weekly meeting for like two hours. She would record it. 
I would go through everything. I mean, all the way from childhood till now in detail. And then she would turn that into the chapters. And the chapters are very unique because um, there's several chapters. The first part of every chapter is my story told in my voice. But the second part of every chapter is Dr. Shauna Springer's insights, her analysis, her explanation in a global sense. So that anybody, you know, regardless if you're a first responder, a military member, or you're just somebody on the street or a family member of one of those, you're going to get it. You're going to understand it. You're going to see the human side of this badge. And this book, you know, the main purpose was honestly to save lives. It was to save military and first responder lives because like you said, we are killing ourselves at a rate which is much higher than those dying in the line of duty. And it's the number one threat for all first responders. But the second thing that came out of this book is what you already mentioned, one of your purposes was, was to give insight and understanding to the general public as to who we are, what it is that we do, but more importantly, the human toll of the job. And something really cool happened with this book. When it first came out, you know, I go to the gym every day to work out. It's part of my routine for post-traumatic stress. And there's three guys in my gym who I knew had no affiliation with law enforcement. If anything, they had bad experiences with law enforcement. Older men, uh, one was my age, two were a little bit older. And I actually asked them, I said, look, and they didn't know who I was, but we had seen each other for years. I introduced myself. I told them I was retired, told them about the book. I said, I, I just want you to read this. And I want your honest, brutal, no holds bar feedback. And I have to tell you something amazing happened because this book changed their entire perspective on law enforcement. And I'm not taken away from their bad experiences because after they read it, I sat down with them when we had lunch. And now I'm actually very good friends with them. And they shared some horrific law enforcement stories of some very bad contacts where they were profiled where they were harassed. And I was appalled. I was disgusted by their experiences. And the truth is that does happen. It's not the majority of cases, but it still happens. But the fact that this book changed their perspective and let them see us in a different light, let them see us as human, it's indescribable, the power behind this book. Yeah, and it, 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 means, it means more, especially if they can talk to you and see you and know you. So I think the follow-up with things like this, because um, inevitably somebody's going to either, it's going to happen one of two ways. They're either going to see the book first, read it, and then start looking you up and then find interviews like this and, and connect the dots or just the opposite. They get, they're going to see this and they're like, all right, let me go check that book out. And then it, I think it's a good two-tier attack type thing. So the fact that these guys kind of knew you and you knew that they had bad police contacts like that, that speaks volumes for, for what you're doing. Um, like I said, and I, I, I'm, it ain't funny, but dude, I I've literally never heard somebody get such a shit hand like that. That's probably one of the worst hands I've ever heard of. And the fact that you are coming out on top of it, better for it, maybe, in my opinion. I mean, you're out trying to save lives with, with this story and, and put such a traumatic event 
you know, positive twist. You're trying to, you're trying to go out and, and do the right thing and help the community and help other officers and help military. I think that could give a lot of hope to anybody that's even going through a 10th of the trauma that you went through. And that's huge. I'm living proof. I'm living proof that you can get through this, that there is a whole new life on the other side. I have a life today that I never imagined. I mean, I'm a much better father today than I ever was. I'm much more involved in my daughter's life. I appreciate everything around me. I truly live a blessed life. And that's the point of this book is to show you that no matter how dark it gets, no matter how far down that hole you think you are to the point where I literally didn't want to be here anymore. Mm -hmm. I started putting myself in dangerous situations, hoping I died in the line of duty that you can come out of this. You can get better. And in this book, we have solutions. We have programs. We have resources. This book is hope. And it shows that you truly can come out the other side. So I see law enforcement helping law enforcement. I see you've got medical, uh, you got, you know, Dr. Springer, you've, you've got these avenues. Now I can, I look at a healthy city and, and a good relationship as kind of a trifecta thing. I think businesses, local businesses, the citizens and police have to work together as a team. Um, politicians and stuff like it's great if they are a part of it, but we don't, you don't need them. <laughs> That's just kind of the way I look at it. I don't have to have you to have a healthy city. You, you are either going to be a part of the solution or part of the problem, but we have to have teamwork when it comes to police community and businesses. Um, so in that we, we know how this story is going to help us first responders and stuff like that. How can the community be a part of this healing process through what you went through? How could the community have helped you? You know, I'm going to turn it around and I'm going to put the blame on ourselves. We have to do a lot better job as law enforcement officers, as agencies to educate our public on who we are and what we do and inform them, you know, on our procedures, on our tactics, on the laws. And, you know, as an example, if you stop somebody for a traffic violation or you make contact with somebody during a disturbance, you know, once that contact is getting ready to be resolved and you have time, you know, take a minute or two and explain, say, Hey, you know, I'm sorry I had to do this, but here's why. Or, you know, the reason why I'm doing this is because of this, you know, we have to do a better job by explaining things, by, you know, treating people with that respect, because honestly, the business owners, the public, they don't know the things that we have to do. They don't know our procedures. They don't know the laws. They don't know our policies. And so how can we expect them to understand it or understand us if we don't try to educate them ourselves? And it's it's two ways. You know, we have to understand them and they need to educate us and we need more dialogue and we need more interaction. We need programs where we're bringing them into the fold and they're bringing us into the fold. This is teamwork is what it's all about. And it's going to take both sides to resolve this and to come together. I love that. And I love the fact that, I mean, we're on total opposite sides kind of when it comes to the map, you're out in Cali. Um, you know, I'm, I'm about halfway in between. I'm not all the way on the East coast, you know, down in Texas, but, um, culturally very different States. Um, and, 
this is this is what I've been preaching that it, it's a team effort. It's got to be. And here you are, going through all that you've been through, and still able to come up with the perspective of not only civilian law enforcement but military law enforcement as well. Um, that it is going to be a team effort. We cannot do this alone. We cannot improve policing. We cannot improve community situations if we try to be nodal and be siloed and, and do this by ourselves. So I love that you're coming on and you're reaffirming, you know, you owe nothing to me. I owe nothing to you, but you're coming on and preaching the same thing that I'm trying to preach. So now the trick is, is humanizing, breaking down these barriers, opening up the lines of communication, um, through sharing some of the shitty stuff that's happened to us, you know, um, I think that's important, and I think it, I think you coming on here and reaffirming that is great. Um, before I let you go, um, I want to share all of your links and stuff like that. Um, I'm going to pull up here on the screen, so if you're listening, um, we have several uh, ways to find Michael. Um, so I'm going to go down the list here. We got his social media account, uh, Instagram. Oh, I'm sorry. That's not the right one. Uh, <laughs> where did I put the link? Here it is. Uh, it's Sergeant underscore Michael underscore uh, Sugru underscore. And if you're listening to this only, I have the video version, so you're going to have to come on here to find the correct spelling for that. Um, Michael has a LinkedIn account, uh, Michael Sugru. Um that is your favorite spot for people to find you, correct? Yes, it's one of the best spots. Okay. Um, and my man has 38,000 followers on here, so that is one of the best spots to find you. Dang. Um, let's see here. I have pulled up his Facebook account, Sergeant Michael Sugru. Um, you will be able to see that. His, You'll see the book titles everywhere, uh, Relentless Courage. And then on Amazon, I got a link here, actually, um, for y'all to look at. And you will be able to find it on Amazon. It is a bestseller, according to Amazon. So good for you, brother. <laughs> got that going yeah. on. Um, 12 weeks straight. <laughs> and then he's got an article. Um, they did a review on Police One. So all my police officers listening, you all know Police One. Um, so I pulled that up. They do a, a book review of that. And that's where I actually, that small clip I played from YouTube when he was on the other podcast, um, you can find that right there. It's right in, uh, embedded into that article article. So we got all that. Um, Michael, before we let you go, brother, is there anything, any departing words that you would like the public to know and hear? I just want anybody out there that's listening or watching this. If you think you're alone, if you think nobody's going to understand what you're going through, I assure you that they will. There are countless resources out there. There are people that are going to help you to the fullest. They're going to understand what you're going through. And more importantly, you know, know it's going to take time. It's going to take work and patience. There's going to be good days and bad days. But I promise you there's a whole new life on the other side of this. And you can live a better life than you ever imagined. So just get the strength and courage to ask for help. I love it. I love it. All right, brother. I appreciate you uh, taking the time out of your day to come help this humble podcast and uh, get your word out. I think it, I think it's definitely going to help people. Thanks again for having me on.